Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. Well, you can see uh, what I have up here with me on stage. See what this is? I don't overcomplicate it. It's, it's, uh, it's a circle. I, I'm going to refer to this in the next few minutes as the sin circle, which as far as circles go, it's my least favorite kind, right? Like the sin circle is one that we don't want to have a lot to do with. And yet what we're going to study in Romans chapter one is this reality that we're all in the sin circle, every single one of us. That's one of the themes of Romans chapters one through three is that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So Paul is gonna talk specifically about who's in the sin circle, but what I wanna draw your attention to before really jumping into this is that he talks to us about who's in the sin circle while standing in the middle of the sin circle. It would be different, I think, if Paul was talking to us about who's in the sin circle and he was outside and he was pointing and he was angry and there's accusations but that's not what Paul does. There are a number of examples in Romans where Paul includes himself in the circle, but probably the most clear example of this would be a statement that he makes to Timothy. First Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, and he says, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying, and it deserves full acceptance. I'm gonna tell you something, and it might be hard for you to believe when I say it, but what I'm gonna tell you really is true. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul writes, of whom I am the worst. Not I was the worst, not I'm one of the worst, but I, I'm in the center of the circle. And it might feel hyperbolic. I guess when I was young, <laughs> in my faith, I would have read this statement from Paul and thought, oh, he's... He's kind of exaggerating to make a point, but here's what I've discovered is the closer I get to Jesus, the more I recognize how true that is, like the more I see the sin in my life. And, and even the things that I would say, well, look at me because of this, this, and this, but like Paul says your righteousness has become filthy rags because you put your hope in those things and the, those acts of righteousness are actually rooted in sinful pride, right? And, and so he puts himself in the center of the circle and he's gonna to talk to us uncomfortably so about who else is in there with him. Now before we jump into this in Romans one, I wanna point out a few things to you. Um, just acknowledge a few things. Yeah, first of all, like this message and this text that we're gonna study from is, would be considered one of the most culturally offensive passages of scripture in the entire Bible. So, you know, you've been warned. I would just tell you that if you get offended early on, just give me a few minutes. I'm not done. We'll all be offended by the time we leave, okay? Be equal opportunity offenders. And a 35-minute monologue to a large audience is, is probably not the most ideal way to talk through some of this in Romans 1, meaning that a conversation would be helpful, um, meaning that a, a classroom where people could ask some questions, that would be helpful. Because when you have this many people, you have a dynamic where we're all coming to the passage, whether we know it or not or acknowledge it, with like our personal experiences, our perspectives, and our presuppositions. Like That's just true for all of us. And in some ways, it's the most risky when you're bringing those to the table and you don't even know you are. But you are, and so am I. We all have our personal experiences, our preferences, our, our perspectives, 
And with that comes questions and challenges, and, and here's how I would encourage you in these next few minutes. When you start to feel yourself becoming emotionally reactive, let that be a trigger to become prayerfully reflective. I think that's probably not a bad guideline for life in 2024, right? Is choose to be prayerfully reflective instead of emotionally reactive. So when you start to feel reactive, take a breath, be reflective. Secondly, I want to acknowledge that this text that we're studying in Romans 1 here is often taught or preached without including the context of chapters 1 through 3. And so maybe you've heard this taught before, and it's treated like, uh, well, like, like Paul is making a series of posts on social media, and that's not true. Like This isn't like a post that he made. It's a handful of verses out of 433 verses of Romans. And so when it gets taught out of context, what happens is people will weaponize these verses, or they'll water down these verses. They'll either highlight them, pull them out, and not really recognize anything around it, or they'll skip over them quickly. And we don't want to weaponize it, and we don't want to water down. We want to be true to what is taught here in Scripture with a spirit of grace, spirit of truth. And part of the context of this passage is a warning against judgment. It's a warning against judgment. We'll get into it a little bit more in chapter 2 next week. Paul's going to challenge us to recognize there are two kinds of sinners. There are the unrighteous and the self-righteous. And if you're going to have to be one over the other, unrighteous is better. Because the self-righteous will stand outside the circle and not recognize that they're part of the unrighteous. And so what Paul does in chapter 1 is he'll talk about people in the circle, and the self-righteous people are like, oh, all right, let's go. They start clapping. And then chapter 2, Paul's like, what are you clapping about? Right? Like he makes sure we know that we're all included. So that's part of the context. And so Paul's going to get to good news here, but the gospel first has to diagnose us before it can cure us. Somebody put it that way. The good news of the gospel is a diagnosis and a cure. And so we're going to celebrate grace. We're going to celebrate being found, but first you've got to recognize that you're lost. So imagine going to the doctor and it's a standard checkup. The doctor does some tests and checks some things, and then you get a call later saying, hey, you need to come back in. Doctor wants to see you, and you sit down, and the doctor says, hey, here's the diagnosis, and it's not good. And you start to get more and more upset as he tells you what's wrong with you, and that it's, it doesn't, there's not a, like it's lethal on its own. And, and, you, and, and then you get up, and you just walk out. You're just so upset, you just walk out, and the doctor's like, no, 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 come back here, sit down. Like, there's a 100% cure rate on this. Like, there's treatment for it. There's medicine for it. But I got to tell you what's wrong with you before you'll uh, take the medicine. And you're like, well, you could have led with that, right? Like you could have started with that. And Paul does start with that. Romans 1 begins with grace. It begins with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation, right? Like it begins with grace. And then it goes through this diagnosis, confronts us with our own sinfulness. And then it talks about the treatment, the cure, the good news of grace through Jesus Christ. And so as we study the book of Romans, one of the questions that we continually will ask is, what did this mean to the people who first received it? When interpreting scripture, this is sometimes called the aim of the author. What is the author's intended meaning? Because before we can rightly understand what it means to us today, we have to understand what it meant for the people then. And why Romans is so helpful to teach through is it turns out that those of us living in kind of our modern day Western world, it turns out we've got a lot in common 
with first century Rome. We've seen some of that as we've studied in this series. Three things that we've seen about the thinking of the people in Rome that probably sound familiar. Verse 21, their thinking had become futile. NLT says their minds became dark and confused. I think the word confused is a word that probably captures how a lot of us would recognize our culture. I pulled up my news feed with this in mind and I just jotted down some stories that are confusing. A celebrity is advocating for minimalism from her while being interviewed from her mansion. Like, well, a politician's getting off his private jet to attend a conference about the dangers of CO2 emissions. Or teenage boys vandalize a dispenser of women's products because they've been put up in the teenage boy's bathroom. It's confusing. An article about um, <laughs> the increasing number of people who identify as spiritual but don't believe in God. They refer to themselves as spiritual atheists. It's confusing. A woman's rights advocate celebrates the popularity of pornography, which of course objectifies women. And it's just, it's confusing. Verse 22 goes on to describe that culture, and I think ours. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. The, the, the more intelligent they thought of themselves, the more foolish they seemed to become. The more enlightened they claimed to be, the more things just didn't make sense. And I, I think we can recognize that to a large degree within our culture, even as we talk through and hear about gender issues. And so the National Institute of Health has in their budget to take out references to mothers and replace references to mothers with birthing persons or pregnant people. And 10-year-olds begin the school year by telling about themselves and self-selecting their gender. There's like 78 gender pronouns that you can choose from. And if you're confused about those things, that treatments include like amputation and irreversible medical sterilization. And you're like, what? And, and yet we feel proud. Like we think, look how smart we've become. Look how enlightened we have become. Message paraphrases it like this. They trivialized themselves into silliness. They trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. Does that sound familiar? And they pretend to know it all, but they were illiterate about the most important things in life. The more knowledge they had, the more foolish they seemed to become in Rome. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And Carl did a great job just addressing this and walking us through this exchange last week. I read an example of kind of a literal version of that. This guy who owns a hotel took out all the Bibles in the nightstands of the hotel rooms. And you're like, okay, well, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would make national news. But it's what he replaced those Bibles with that drew so much attention because he took out the Bibles out of the nightstands in this hotel and he replaced the Bibles with copies of the sexually explicit bestseller, Fifty Shades of Grey. And when the owner was asked about it, like... Do you, do you think that's inappropriate? He doubled down. He said, you know what's inappropriate is having a Bible in these hotel rooms of a secular culture. They exchange the truth for a lie. And so you, you read through Romans, and we'll see this again and again as we study the book. There are just all these parallels to the world we live in. Maybe towards the top of that list would be kind of a live and let live approach to morality. Like you do what you do, I'll do what I, I do. I'm not gonna tell you what's right and wrong. You're not gonna tell me what's right and wrong. 
And, and typically, when we're trying to decide what's right and wrong in a culture, there typically are two measures that are widely practiced, two lenses that we often look through to decide right and wrong, to determine morality. The first lens is popular opinion. The second lens is personal experience or preference, right? Like, I look and see what everybody else says and how everybody else thinks, or I determine what's right and wrong based on how I feel and what makes me happy. And if you just kind of run your morality through that filter, you see where you land. Like maybe five, 10 years ago, you said certain things were wrong, but now not so much anymore. And it just so happens that your shifts have gone along with the trajectory of culture. Or you used to think something was wrong, but then your personal preferences around this changed or something close to you changed how you see it. And, and it, becomes more, it becomes more subjective. The term for this, both in Roman culture and our own, that might be helpful would be moral relativism. And this just holds that someone's beliefs, practices, and ethics are relative to that person's social context and lived experiences. That what determines right and wrong for you and for me would be my social context, where I live, when I live, who I live around, and then my, my personal experiences, my lived experiences. And I think most of us would acknowledge our tendency towards that, if we're honest. Verse 18 says of these people that they suppress the truth by their wickedness, meaning like their own selfish desires keep them from seeing what's right and wrong. I, I was uh, visiting with this young man that I've known for a number of years. Uh, he wanted to sit down and talk to me because his views on uh, sex outside of marriage had changed, and he wanted to have a conversation with me about that. And, and he we sat down and he talked to me about, well, I think the Bible actually says this. And, I think, and, and when he's done, what happens in that conversation is I don't say, well, look, let's look at this passage and here's the Greek word here and the meaning of it. Instead, I just ask him a question. I said, hey, um, is there any chance that you went off to college and got a girlfriend? And he's like, well, yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with this. I'm like, okay, all right. If you say so, if you say so, but here's the thing. I know me. And I know you. I know how we are, that suddenly we begin to question some things based on our personal preferences or what's happening around us. It's moral relativism. Here's a contrasting term that would be helpful is moral absolutism. And this is the idea that there are, in fact, moral absolutes that are not relative to culture. They don't change based on your individual experiences or, or popular opinion. And if you're a moral absolutist, then you have to ask yourself, what is the source of my morality? Like, what's the source of my truth? How am I gonna determine what's right and wrong? If I'm not gonna determine it based on my culture, and if I'm not gonna determine it based on my personal feelings and experiences, then what's gonna determine right from wrong? And typically, there'd be two different um, truth sources that you might point to. One would be the divine command theory. And this would state that God dictates morality, that he is the creator, the designer of the universe, that he gets to determine, he gets to determine the rules. And, and you have the freedom to violate those rules or to follow those rules, but he's the one who gets to, to establish them. And so you'll hear Christians talk about this, and, and, and rightly so. Like this, 
authority of scripture, like the Bible says it and I believe it, that settles it, right? Like that mentality for followers of Jesus that would say like, I, just, I know it's not popular and honestly, I don't even like it that much personally, but I trust that God is good. I believe what he said and that's gonna be my authority. It's gonna be my truth source. The other option would be natural law theory. And the natural law theory states that the observable and natural world and the clear laws of nature make some clear inarguable um, definitions of what is right and what is wrong. You can look around and you can, just by looking at the design of creation, say, well, this is how things work and this is how things don't work. This is right, this is wrong. My, my uh, grandson, 16 months old, and if you put a puzzle in front of him that has like shapes, squares, circles, triangles, he could match up those shapes. He could take the square and put it in the square and the circle, put it in the circle, etc. Like he knows how it works. Now, if you ask him to say the word square, he might say it. I, I, he probably, probably can't say the word square yet. He, he says a handful of words. What, I should tell you though that one of the words he says is uh, Papa. And that's me. Like, that's one of the words. And another word he says, he only says a handful, but another word he says a lot is hot. He says hot and papa. And so I've taught him to say these words together <laughs> and repeat them in front of my wife, his grandmother, in hopes that hot papa will be her nickname for me. But he doesn't, he doesn't say a lot. He doesn't say a lot of words. He does say some. I don't think he would say square. He might. He certainly couldn't, he certainly couldn't define square as a 16-month-old. If you said, hey, uh, what is the definition of a square? He couldn't say whatever the definition of a square is, you know, a shape with four equal sides. I don't know if that's right. But he, he wouldn't give you the technical definition, but he can put the square in the square. Like he can just look at it and, and see, oh, this is how this works. And the natural law theory states that part of God's general revelation is not just showing himself to exist, but showing that there is a standard of morality that's also built into the universe that exists. So natural moral laws would be the equivalent to like a, a natural law of gravity. Before gravity had been quote unquote discovered, it had been understood by nature. Like in other words, people knew I can't jump off that cliff without something bad happen, happening. Like they, they, they couldn't tell you why, they couldn't define gravity or even call it that, but they knew this is not right based on what happens. And so it's kind of built into to nature. And this is part of the argument Paul is making in Romans 1.20. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. And this is sometimes referred to as the teleological or teleological argument for the existence of God, that the complexity of the universe draws this conclusion that there must be a, a designer. The complexity of the design demands a designer. And what Paul does here in Romans 1 is he, he makes this teleological argument not just to show the existence of God, but also the existence of a moral code, a, a right and wrong um, to the world we live in, some self-evident moral absolutes based on nature. And, and as he does this, he's going to start talking to us about who's in the sin circle. Verse 26, he says, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error, Paul writes. 
Now, I want you to notice just the emphasis on natural versus unnatural. Like one of the things that Christians sometimes do when they're trying to argue for morality is they'll say, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And, and while you're talking to other believers, that's a, a valid approach here. But when you're talking to, in Paul's case, like this hyper-secular culture in Rome, it's not that it's not true, it's just that it's not that helpful, right? Because he could say here, well, Genesis says, Leviticus says, Jesus talked about marriage this way, and Matt, like he, he could have pointed these scriptures out, but instead he points to nature and he just says, look, you can tell, here's how sex and procreation works, and here's how male and female and reproduction works, and and so he talks about the sin of homosexuality, not by pointing to God's decree, though he could have, but instead by talking about God's natural design. And so if you look at sexuality in general for all of us, the question is, what lens am I going to look, look through? Am I going to look at sexuality through the lens of culture and popular opinion, Am I I gonna take a poll and then let that poll be the lens through which I make this decision? Or am I gonna make the lens based on what feels right to me? Am Am I gonna make that decision through the lens of what I think will be easiest and most comfortable? And Or am I gonna look through the lens of God's decree, God's design? And he says that those who practice these things received in themselves a due penalty. And this is consistent with how the New Testament just talks about sexual sin in in general. This idea that you can't violate God's command in this area without violating yourself. Again, go back to the law of gravity. Like you don't have to like it, you don't have to agree with it, and you can decide. Well, I'm I'm going to be an anti gravity person. Okay, I mean you can like you can do that, but but it it just doesn't it doesn't work out very well. And that's true for all sexual sin. Like you, you can't violate that without violating yourself. And, and I'm not gonna do this, but if I were to do this, if I were to say, and I'm not gonna say, but if I were to say, hey, everybody in this room at all of our campuses, if, if you, you know, raise your hand if you have experienced the consequences of sexual sin. If I were to do that, I'm not doing that. If I were to do that. Every hand of an adult person would be raised, either your sexual sin or somebody else's sexual sin. Why? Why is that? Like if there's no standard, if there's no objective truth, if there's no design that has a specific designer, why is it that every single person has experienced pain and due penalty of sexual sin in their lives? And it's because God has made us a certain way, right? Like an, atom, an automobile manufacturer designs their cars a certain way. And, and if you get a car and you're like, what's my car? I'll do what I want to with it. And you don't want to put gas in it because gas is expensive and water's much cheaper. You can put water in your gas. It's your car. Like you can do that, but it's not going to work very well or at all, eventually, right? Or, or your oil, let's say, you know, oil changes take time and they've gotten more expensive and coffee looks a lot like oil. And so I'm just gonna use coffee instead of oil. Like you can do that. And, and honestly, you could probably find some people around you that would affirm it. They'd say, hey, you know, it's your car. You, you do what you wanna do. And 
They might even be positive. They might even say, that's actually really creative. Let's see how that works, right? Like, but there's this heartbreaking moment in life when we recognize what happens. And I think all of us, if we're honest, have had these moments when we just violate what God says in this area and we experience a little bit of a wreck. Outside of God's design, sexual sin, it it promises connection. Like it makes us think you're not gonna be alone anymore and you're just tired of being alone and you just want somebody to be close to, you just wanna feel close to someone, you wanna touch, you wanna be touched and this is gonna, it's gonna do that for you. But if you've done this and gone down this path, you just feel lonelier than ever. And it promises us pleasure. Like you feel like I'm missing out, I'm the only one who is, and then you see these images and you watch these things and you think, oh, that, man, that, that's what I want. And, and then it just leaves you feeling emptier than ever. And it promises freedom, but it always wants to enslave, and it promises satisfaction, but it just leaves you unsatisfied. And so we exchange God's truth for a lie, and then we don't realize it's a lie until, and I just think most of us can relate to that. I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and I've, I've walked with lots of people who've been caught up in sexual sin and have experienced those consequences. And I've experienced the natural consequences of sexual sin in my own life. And I just know it's true. And so there was a day where talking about some of these things would have felt more difficult than it is now. It's less difficult now because I'm fully convinced that it is the loving and compassionate thing to do. Like I, I I really believe that to be true based on my experience as a pastor and based on my personal experience I think the least loving thing and the least compassionate thing to do is just to say, hey, here's some coffee for your oil. And, and so we speak the truth and love because we believe God really is good. A few years ago, after I preached a sermon where I talked about homosexuality, I, I received a message from a young lady and though her message to me was not private, it wasn't privately sent, um, I... I did change a few details here just to be overly careful in protecting her privacy. Uh, Mr. Eidelman, last Saturday in your sermon, the issue of homosexuality was brought up. And after church, I went home and tried to kill myself. I was in the hospital until Friday morning and got discharged. I walked towards the river, looked down over the bridge and I threw a bead off my broken necklace into the water, it was a long way down, I thought about jumping. For three hours I sat in the exact same spot and thought about jumping. Obviously I didn't, but it seemed like a brilliant idea at the time. It's the first time in my life I'd ever considered ending my life because of my sexuality. And it was around that time in the message that I, I, I stopped reading because I thought I was, I thought I was gonna, uh, I thought I was gonna throw up. I just felt this wave of nausea come. And I ran to the bathroom 
And I shut the door and I knelt down in front of the toilet and just, uh, just cried. I, I just felt sick for this young lady who listened to the sermon and would go home and try to attempt her, uh, to take her own life. And I, I wanted nothing more for her than the love and the grace of Jesus. I wanted nothing more for her than the freedom and purpose in him. I wanted her to know what it's like, like I do, to be set free from shame and to be set, set free from, that, from guilt and enslavement of sin. And I stayed up late that night and I listened to that sermon probably three times and I just tried to decide what did I, you know, what did I say? What, was my tone right? Was my spirit right? Was I too harsh? Was I gentle as a shepherd? Was I compassionate and honest? I, I didn't sleep much that night. I, I, share, I share the story with you now because I, I, I don't want there to be any doubt for those of you who sit and you listen to this and you might have these same thoughts and feelings. I don't want there to be any doubt how much you're loved and cared for. I don't want you to have any moment of questioning whether or not you're alone or not alone. I, I didn't have much peace that week, but then the, the following week at church, I, I prayed and about it and had really tried to hear from God on, on some of these things. And this, this woman came and introduced herself to me right outside of our sanctuary and asked if she could share her story with me. And, and I asked her if I could share it with you. And then she started coming to church here when a neighbor invited her to come and she showed up the first weekend with her live-in girlfriend, but she kept coming. And everything was going well, but then one weekend, the sermon was like this sermon and addressed the sin of homosexuality, and she and her girlfriend stormed out, decided they were never going to come back, but she, she said she just couldn't stop thinking about the love of God and just what she was learning, and that he just kept pursuing her. Some of you know what that's like. Like, he's not, he just keeps coming. And eventually, she decided she was going to become a follower of Jesus, come what may. Like, she was going to follow Jesus, and whatever changes she needed to make, with his help, she was going to make it, and eventually... That led her to break off this relationship with her girlfriend. She surrendered her life to Jesus. And when, when she was talking to me, she said that, you know, at first she was just so angry and, it, and was just so hurt and she just didn't want to hear it. But then she said, after a few months when I came back, like I, I recognized, in her words, it's how you know someone really cares about you. I so want that to be true. Like that our spirit, that our hearts, oh, are inside the circle. Like we, we love and we care. If we didn't, we wouldn't say a thing. And, and so Paul makes this argument pointing to nature. It's also worth noting where he writes this letter from. Do you remember this? He, he writes the letter from the city of, you remember? Corinth. Corinth is like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And, um, and in Corinth, like the highborns in Corinth, the men would often have uh, male lovers that they would come, have come into the home. And in Greek thought, the city of Corinth, it was kind of thought, it was super celebrated. It was thought to be like the highest form of love. And so he's surrounded by it in Corinth. And then it's, it's also what's happening in Rome. 
So you think, well, why does he bring this up so soon in his letter? I mean, it's the only time he talks about it. Why, why bring it up in chapter one? I think it's because he's writing it from Corinth to Rome. And in Rome, like even as the people are reading this, here's what's happening in the palace. Nero, his wife, pregnant wife has died. We don't know for sure how she died. It's thought that he kicked her to death while she was pregnant. He then sees this young man that reminds him of his wife, named Sporus, and he has Sporus castrated, then marries Sporus in this wedding ceremony that's celebrated, and then invites Sporus to come live in the palace with him as his wife. That's what's happening when they, when they receive this. And so you think, well, oh, maybe that's why he talks about this. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, it, it, you hit these things in Corinthians, and you hear these things in, in Romans, especially because this is where it's so prevalent and celebrated. And, and you look at Jesus in the gospels, and you're like, well, why didn't Jesus talk about homosexuality? Like he talked about marriage and he talked about one man and one woman, which of course, uh, you know, excludes that which would contradict it. But, but in ancient Israel, like this was not common in practice and it certainly wasn't celebrated. And, and so Paul, I think, especially addresses this early on because he's writing it from Corinth to Rome. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them, turned them over to their own foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Again, Carl talked through some of this last week, but this kind of um, increasing nature of sin where NIV says they gave them over to a depraved mind where God says, okay, so you're, this is what you want? Like, this is where you're going to go with this. You want to be free? Then, and he, he lets them go over to that. And I, I understand that some of you don't like what God says in this passage about sexuality. I understand that. I understand that that's true about a lot of things we talk about, like with money. Like, a lot of you don't like what God says about money or relationships or marriage or like, there's a lot you don't, you don't like. But you don't like what God says about sexuality. And, and I would just say, if that's where you're at, if you just pray a prayer, just say, God, God, would you, change my, would you change my heart? Because look, he's not going to change. Like he's, he's not gonna change his mind. He's not gonna change his standards. He's not gonna change his definitions. Like God's not gonna take a poll and say, oh, you guys are voting against this? All right. Like, like he's not gonna change his boundaries. He's not gonna change the design. He's not gonna do that, but he'll change your heart. Believe that. Rosaria Butterfield talks about that moment for her. She was a practicing lesbian and professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. She talks about her conversion in a book called The Secret Thought Life, or excuse me, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And she says it was Romans 1 that really she couldn't ignore. And, and it pushed her, she says, to ask herself a couple of questions that were beyond her sexual desires. And here are the two questions she said she just had to confront herself with. Question number one, who in my life gets to declare what is good? It's a really good question. Who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide what is good? Who do you trust to decide what's good? Question number two, who or what is Lord of my life, my desires or God's word? Who gets to decide what is good and, and who or what is Lord of my life? Is it gonna be my desires or is it gonna be God's word? And then she expresses what happened this way. She says, ultimately, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. Meaning the unbelief that God was good. Once you believe that God is good, like if you really believe it, then what he says about sex and money and relationships and all of that, like, okay, 
But you've got to ask yourself, what do I really believe? What do I really believe? If you want to study more on this subject, I would recommend a couple of her books to you. Number one, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert and Five Lies of Her Anti-Christian Age. We keep reading and Paul expands the sin circle. Verse 29, it's going to get big fast. He says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Greed. Bible talks about greed 10 times as much as it talks about sexual immorality. What would happen if we took that as seriously? And he talks about people who practice deceit, malice, they're gossips and slanders. How many Christians do you know who are quick to condemn the sexually immoral, but how do they do it? Through gossip and slander, and in doing so, they put themselves in the sin circle. Paul goes on, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also celebrate, also approve those who practice them. And so Paul just kind of messes here with our hierarchy of, of sin. He talks about envy and murder. And he talks about gossipers and God-haters. And all of a sudden, those of us who've been standing outside the circle trying to make ourselves feel better recognize, oh, I'm in there too. And for anybody who's listened to this and they think, oh, I'm good. I think I'm fine. I don't think I'm in the circle. There's a word here you should catch. It's the word, where's it at? Oh, there it is, arrogant. So welcome. Welcome to the sin circle. You're in there too. Chapter two, verse 16, if you're still not sure you're in there, speaks of the fact that one day our secret thoughts will be judged as the same as those who committed the actions. We're all in the circle. We're all in the circle. And so Paul's setting up the good news here for us that forgiveness and salvation comes, but you've got to recognize your own sin. You have to recognize that you're lost so you can be found. He knows only the people who recognize that they're in the sin circle can experience the treatment, can experience the cure. So in chapter two, Paul's, like I said, Paul's gonna talk to people Come back next week because, well, he's going he's gonna to be uh, really direct with people who, th- who are judging others because of their sin without looking at the sin in their own lives. And, um, and, and there's this pre- pronoun change that takes place between chapter one and two, where chapter one, maybe you picked up on this, where he's, he's talking about, you know, they, 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 they. And then chapter two, it's like you, 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 because he wants to make sure everybody understands that you are they. You are they. Like the gospel is not good news until you recognize that you are they. Like we're all in this circle together. A pastor by the name of Jean LaRue talks about doing some work with a um, ministry called Love in Actions for people who are caught up in sexual addiction. And John tells about sitting in one of the group meetings, uh, and he'd never been to a group like this before, a good-sized group of men in this meeting who had gathered, and a guy gets up on stage and he shares a bit of his story from the night before, and in his story he says that he was driving home from work and he passed this adult nightclub, and he said, I really wanted to stop. And when he said that, a bunch of hands from the people there went up in the air. And then John's like, why, what's the deal? Why, why are people raising their hands? Who's asking questions? It's, it's odd. The guy keeps talking. The guy says, well, I didn't want to, but I pulled into the parking lot and I went in. And again, quite a few hands are raised. And John doesn't understand why, why are people raising their hands? He said, I spent the evening there and he confessed some of what happened. Hands went up. 
when he got done with his story, he said, when I left, I felt so ashamed. I didn't think God could love me. And at this point, almost every hand in the room was raised. And afterwards, Jean was talking to the director of that group. And the director says to Jean, you look troubled. And he said, well, I am a little troubled. I don't understand why everybody kept raising their hands. And did they have questions? And if they had questions, who was gonna answer them? I just didn't understand what was happening. And the director said, no, you, you don't understand. He said, we have one rule at love and action. And so you never struggle alone. So if you've ever struggled with the same thing that someone else is confessing, you have to raise your hand. Raising a hand is a way of saying, you're not alone. And I'm in the circle too. And as a church, that's who we are. We're a church of raised hands. Like we're all in this sin circle. In fact, in case you missed it, I'm preaching this sermon from inside the circle. I can't tell you how much I'd love to have just like three feet would have been awesome. If I could just set it up right there, it would have been great. But, but I'm in the circle. I read through that list. I, I have been greedy. Let me say that again. I have been greedy. Yeah. I have been envious easier if you just keep them up. (laughs) I have been deceitful. I've gossiped. I've slandered. I've been arrogant and boastful. I've been lustful and selfish. I've caused damage to my life and the lives of people I love because I've followed my desires instead of God's design. It's all all true. But can I cheat ahead to what we're going to study in Romans chapter 5? Verse 8, but God demonstrated his love for us in this that while we were in the circle, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He he didn't say, well, look, you gotta get your stuff together. You get get cleaned up a bit and and get outside the circle. And when, when you get outside the circle, let's talk. We'll talk then. No, like while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He took his, our sin upon himself. And then Romans says that it's his kindness that leads us to salvation. Like it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's, you know what doesn't lead people to repentance? It's Jesus or the church standing outside the circle just yelling. It, it's his kindness, it's God's kindness that causes our hearts to be drawn to him. And so we wanna celebrate his kindness and mercy and we wanna celebrate his grace. We wanna celebrate the fact that Jesus came into this circle and he took our sin upon himself. We're gonna rejoice in that. We're gonna celebrate that this year together as we study Romans. But I know that before we can really experience the good news of the gospel, we have to be honest about our own sin. And so I would welcome you into this circle with me. God, I thank you that this is where you meet us. I thank you that your grace finds us when we're lost and broken and um, sinful. I thank you, God, that inside the circle, there's really not a lot of room to raise a hand and point fingers, but we can raise a hand and say, yeah, that's me too. I pray, God, that you would allow us to experience your grace and your freedom in in new ways, that we wouldn't leave here feeling shame or guilt or condemnation, but that we could leave here feeling set free and forgiven and made new. God, I thank you that your grace is sufficient, that that for some of us, like we're gonna struggle, we're gonna have our sin struggles for the rest of our lives. But you're gonna teach us to depend on you and you're gonna teach us to find strength in you and you're gonna teach us 
to rely on your grace, not our own works, not, not our own goodness. And there's so much freedom there. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.